Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good morning. What an honor and a privilege to, uh, to be in this beautiful chapel. Uh, this seminary is known throughout the entire country, and uh, especially under the leadership of Dr. Aiken. Uh, he's known as the quintessential churchman, scholar, and um, a man that's driven with the Great Commission message in his heart, and so it really is an honor for me to be here. I'm delighted that you guys have uh, chosen to show up, and so I want to pray, and then we will get started. Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts through your word. We pray that you would remove every obstacle, every distraction that would keep us from hearing you. And right now where, you see, where you're seated, would you ask God to speak to you through his word? Would you confess any sins that are standing in the way of his work in your life this morning? Would you pray for me that I would be useful for the next few minutes that we have? Father, keep this from being what we do before lunch. We don't want to leave here smarter sinners. We want to leave here transformed. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, for you alone are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his reputation alone. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. I'm an American of Cuban descent. And uh, my parents divorced when I was very young. I don't remember them being married. And so I was very rebellious, and it was difficult for my mom to rein me in. At the age of 15, I, uh, how shall we say, borrowed her 1982 color, uh, Cadillac Eldorado. It was beautiful. It was red, leather interior, and it was big. It was a big old Cadillac. And I had been eyeing it for many, many years. Finally, I got the courage to do it. I took her car without her knowing, and I went for a little spin. Um, I got into a little bit of an altercation with a dump truck on the corner of 8th Street and 132nd Avenue, and the dump truck won. I totaled the car. Florida State Troopers showed up. My mom showed up with a stick in her hand, ready to break, ready to break the stick over, over my head. He calmed her down. And um, as a result of that, I wasn't allowed near any cars for many years. But when I was ready to finally get my driver's license, she made me uh, take a driving course at a famous driving school in Miami called Mitio Driving School, my uncle's driving school. That's the name of it. And uh, I kid you not, one uh, Wednesday afternoon, Jesus, that's right, Jesus taught me how to drive. Jesus showed up uh, in a little Nissan Sentra 
with a very, very large sign on top of the car. The sign was larger than the car itself, and it said, Mi Tio Driving School. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but he sat in the passenger side, I sat on the driver's side, and the passenger side, believe it or not, actually had a brake pedal. And so if I was doing something that Jesus didn't like, Jesus didn't like, he would hit the brakes. So he would say, I need you to pull out, and I would pull out, I need you to change lanes. And when I was going to change lanes, I had my hands on 10 and 2. You know, I read the book, 10 and 2. I uh, hit the turning signal, and I, uh, I looked at the side view mirror. I looked at the rear view mirror. When I started to change lanes, he pumped the brakes right there. And I looked at him, and I said, Jesus, what is your problem? <laughs> He said, uh, you need to actually look to see if there's a car there. I said, you told me to 10 and 2, keep my eyes forward. And I looked at the side view mirror. I looked at the rear view mirror. He said, no, this car has a blind spot. You have to actually turn. I go, well, that doesn't sound right for me to be moving forward. He goes, you need to do it because there's a, there's a picture, there's a, there's a spectrum in this car where you can't see unless you actually turn around and, and look. Rearview mirror won't help you. Side view mirror won't help you. You have a blind spot. I said, okay, so checked out the blind spot. And then I, I moved we went forward, and we, he actually wanted me to go on the, the turnpike. And uh, so we were in Florida and got on the turnpike. He said, I need you to change now to the, to the right lane, 10 and 2, turning signal. Everything's working well. No radio, of course, in the car. No music was blasting. Side view mirror, good. Uh, uh, rear view mirror, good. Side view mirror, good. And I'm going to begin to turn on the turnpike. We're going about 55, and he hits the brakes again in the middle of the turnpike and hits my shoulder. Blind spot. I said, well, you said there was a blind spot on the left side. He goes, well, there's one on the right side as well. And so it was, it, it was with Mitio driving school that I first learned about the concept of blind spots, something that you have to actually look for in order to make sure that you are going to avoid an accident. In life, there's blind spots. In ministry, there's blind spots. In your spiritual life, there are blind spots, these areas in our lives that go unnoticed unless someone points them out to you or you are constantly looking to make sure that you're keeping an eye on those blind spots. It's an act of love for someone to point out a blind spot to you, and it's an act of humility and biblical maturity for you to respond properly to that warning, blind spots. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus is writing through John seven letters to seven churches. Unlike the epistles, these letters are different. He writes these seven letters to these churches that have exotic and exquisite names. You're going to be tempted when you read these letters to say, well, they're so many years apart, language apart. Uh, they don't apply to me, but they do apply to you. And so we're going to look at this first letter. There are too many distractions in ministry, too many distractions in seminary, distractions that have to, are tugging at your heart, that have to do with your pride, that have to do with your ego, with your mind, with your, with your spirit. I, I want... I want us to listen to the words of Jesus Christ speaking through John at, at what one of these blind spots might be. Blind spots. When I was in seminary, felt like a long time ago, when I first went to seminary, we had to wear a coat and tie every day. 
So I kind of feel like I, I was born at the wrong period. I should have come to Southeastern, and I heard jeans are welcome. From a guy from South Florida, I'm wearing jeans. And um, I had lots of struggles. And I had a pride I was dealing with. And I wanted to perform for my professors. I, I wanted them to approve me. I wanted to get certain grades. I wanted to, I wanted to, to do really well. When you get into ministry, believe it or not, you have the same types of blind spots that have to do with, with your pride, with, with who you're going to actually depend on, with who you're actually ministering for. For faculty, it might be a, a publication or an article or a lecture. Areas of our lives that we need to be careful about. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. And so essentially what we're going to see this morning is that your first love should be your first work. Your first love should be your first work. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now in the beginning when I would teach this book to our college campus, students would say, now you see Bernie, that's the problem. That's why we don't read this book. It, it sounds like Harry Potter. It sounds like Narnia. What is he talking about? Angels, Ephesus, seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What, what's taking place there? And so you, we can set the scene. First you have Ephesus. It's the capital of a Roman province in Asia Minor. One of the three great trade routes during this time. There was a 25,000-seat amphitheater there dedicated to the temple. The temple of Diana was there. It was a key vacation spot. There was a fertility goddess. It was a place where there was a large prostitution ring, over 1,000 prostitutes. It was an unclean and morally depraved city, the same Ephesus that Paul departed from about 30 years before this letter was written. That's the place. Who's the speaker? This, the speaker is speaking to, to the angel. Angelos could be a divine messenger, actually a messenger, a person. I take it to be the elder of this church, the leader of this church. Can I say elder? It's Baptist seminary. I just caught that. So we'll call him, we'll call him a deacon or a pastor. And um, that, that's who he's writing to. He's writing to the leader of this church. Who's doing the speaking? The one who holds the stars in chapter 1, verse 20. He says the lampstand is the, the church, the ministry of the church. The church is to reflect and, and demonstrate the light of God. That's what we do. We give, we give light to a dark place in a dark world. And, and Jesus is standing in the midst of these churches, of these seven churches. You see that there in the text in verse 1? Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's saying, I hold these leaders in my hand. I have my hand there. It is, it is my church. This is who, the one who wrote the letter, and he is, he is writing. This is his. The church belongs to, to Jesus, right? Remember when the penniless, penniless carpenter stands in the midst of Caesarea Philippi, in the midst of all of these uh, so-called powerful gods? And he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. It is 
my church. It is, it's his church. It's his church. It belongs to him. And then he continues. So that's the scene. That's the, the place that is the speaker. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear to be with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. He says, I know your deeds. And so the first thing you see in this letter is Jesus, he commends your work. He commends your work. Good, good job, that a boy, encouraging them. I know about your hard work. I know about your long work. I know about your pure work. Right there in the text, I know your works, your, your toil, your endurance, and how you cannot bear to be with those who are false. He gives them the positive. He says, listen, what what you're doing is is good. I'm intimately involved. And so Jesus is pointing out to the church, here's a a good thing. When you're in ministry, you'll get lots of feedback from lots of people. Most of the feedback uh, will often be hurtful. This isn't one of those people. This is if uh, your spouse actually comes up to you and is giving you feedback. You're going to listen. If it's a mentor or a professor, you want to listen to what they have to say. It's someone that's intimately involved in what's, what's going on in this church. And he says, I know your work. I know about your, your hard work. Ministry is, is hard work. Don't get over the fact that Jesus is in the midst of this church and, and, and Jesus wants to respond to you. See, your temptation is going to be to care more about people's response than Jesus' response. And don't do that. Don't do that. I know about your, your hard work, your toil. I know about the fact that you serve to the point of exhaustion. This church knew what it meant to work hard. Ministry is hard work. They did it in the power of the Spirit. You're in seminary now, and you're thinking, this is too much, I can't bear. And your professors and mentors are saying, well, you just wait. You wait until you graduate from here. You'll see what hard work actually is. God is preparing you. It's, a, it's stair steps. He's molding your character. Might not say that in the course syllabus, but that's exactly what's taking place. He's molding your character. He's, he's building you up. He says, I know about your hard work. He says, I know about your, your long work, your perseverance and your patience. This is serious and sustained activity. And he says, good work. He says, keep it up. This is good. This church understood that discipleship wasn't a book this church understood that discipleship wasn't a program. This church understood that discipleship was living life with people surrounded and around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it was, it was messy. He, he knew that this church knew what was taking place. He says, I know about your hard work. I know about your long work. I know about your pure work. He says it in verse 2. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there was a false teacher in the midst of this church, and they told this false teacher to get out. This church was doctrinally pure. They were pure, and they were true. They had gone to great inconveniences for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
we debate a little bit what was this sect, and most scholars would agree that they were followers of Christ that thought it was okay to live a life of sin without any repercussions whatsoever, almost as a form of hedonism. So first he commends their work, but he doesn't stop there. Now he's going to condemn their weakness. Look at verse 4. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. I have this against you. You have a blind spot. You have an area in your life, in your ministry, that you need to actually turn to look at in order to avoid a car accident. I have this against you. This same Jesus that said, hey, good job, long work, pure work, hard work, saying those things are, are great. But in addition to that, you have this one area that I need you to work on. When I first started working at Family Church, we, uh, we have a, an interesting culture where we're constantly giving feedback and I had to give feedback to someone, and our lead pastor, Jimmy Scroggins, I said, man, it's kind of hard to tell him what you want me to tell him. And he would say, well, you need to give him a sandwich. Give him the sandwich. I said, well, what's the sandwich? He said, you don't know what a sandwich is? I said, no, I don't know what a sandwich is. He goes, well, you, you, first you tell him a positive, the bread positive. Then you give him the negative, kind of what's in the middle. And then you give him the positive, positive, negative, positive. He goes, give him the sandwich. So when you're going to make sure Jesus is giving the church in Ephesus a sandwich, he's pointing out first the positive. My, my boys, they play uh, soccer, and I used to coach them for years. Every sport they played, whether it was soccer, baseball, or uh, basketball, we, we would coach them. And uh, how shall I say, I, I got very passionate in the games. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? And... Um, and uh, people would come up to my wife and say, what does he do for a living? And she would say, don't ask <laughs> what he does for a living. And, and they would say, can you tell him to stop yelling? And my wife's like, oh, he's not yelling right now. Actually, this is normal tone, right? We're Cuban, so we don't have an inside voice. It's just the way we speak. I don't even need a mic right now. And, and uh, she said, hey, you're too hard on the kids. I go, well, he's not, he's not running correctly. He's not running the right pattern. She goes, I know, but he's six. And, um, <laughs> and you're a volunteer coach. And come on. So she said, I need you to be more positive. And so on one of the boys' soccer teams, there was a little boy named Timmy, and I was trying to be more positive. I wanted to give him the sandwich. But man, I just, I, I didn't like him. You know, I didn't like this. He was kind of in my way. And he would, the boy would mess up, and I would look at his dad like, really? Like, he can't run? <laughs> Can you run with him? That's all we need you to do. Just let him run without falling. And so, and I remember, I remember to give him a sandwich, which is essentially what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, give him a sandwich. And I remember I would kneel down and say, Timmy, mm, uh, man, those sneakers, they look really good on you today, Timmy. Uniform looks great, Timmy. Now, I need you to sit down. I need you to sit down. You're not going to play anymore, but I really like your sneakers. You see that? Positive, negative, positive. You follow? 
Now Jesus is talking about the negative, and he says this in verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You read all, you read all of the seven letters. This one has to sting the most. You've, you've less, left your first love. What, was, what does that mean? You've left your primary love. In English, we translate it adverbially, the love you had at first, right? The way it used to be, right? We've lost that loving feeling that happened that what took place a long time ago. And so we say, well, is it talking about love for Christ or love for, for people? Love for Christ, your devotional life, your personal worship, or your love for people, your, your ministry, the Great Commission. Here, here's what I like about your school. You can't have a love for Christ and not love people. That's what James would say, right? No, no fruit, mm, no root, no root. You can't separate the two. You can't have this and not have this not be demonstrating the, the fruit of the Spirit in your, in your walk with people. Can you love Jesus Christ with all your love, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and not love your neighbor as yourself? He would say, no, you, you can't do that. So it's both. It's speaking about your love that is intense, first in quality, first in intensity. Has your duty for Christ overshadowed your devotion to him? Are you doing the right things with the wrong motivation? Do you love people the way that you should? I do. I do, Bernie. I do. All right, well, let's ask your roommate. Let's ask your spouse. Let's, let's see what they have to say about where you are in the love department. Can the love of Christ be demonstrated in your love for how you love the people that are around you. He says, love one another as I have loved you. They will, they will know you are my disciples, my people, by your love. Your first love should be your first work. You see this in, in marriage. Man, when I finally saw that I had a chance with my wife, man, I put my game on. I mean, I would iron stuff. I would shower cologne all the time, cologne. I would do push-ups before she'd walk in the room, <laughs> open the door, close the door. We didn't have any money when we were dating. I'd call her and say, hey, we got, I got paid. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? <laughs> Wherever you want to go. The sky's the limit. Where do you want to go? No, wherever you want to go. And then uh, things change, right? I don't even own cologne anymore. <laughs> like I have, the, I have the little samples that I go like that every now and like a, for a wedding or something. <laughs> right, no more cologne, no more gel, no more push-ups, as you could tell. Uh, where do you want to go? I don't know. Just pick. Just make a decision. I want to eat already. Let's just go. <laughs> Let's just go. I don't know what to order. What do you think I should? Just pick something. Come on. We're hungry. Look at the kids. Everybody. It changes, right? 
I remember how easily it was for her to be the center of attention. Every, every decision I made revolved around the other person. And then there's this temptation for her to be secondary, tertiary, right? And the same thing happens with Jesus Christ. He says you've left that primary love, that first love, love and quality, love and intensity. Remember when every decision you made, every single decision you made was wrapped around him, what he would say, what he would have wanted you to do. Preachers, do you remember when God's word would drive you to the pulpit and not vice versa? The pulpit drives you to God's word because you got to think of something to say. Lectures, God's word would drive you to the lecture hall. Because you wanted, or vice versa, I gotta, I gotta fill the syllabus, I gotta fill what has to be said next. He says that, that primary love. And I was awkward, God saved me when I was 12 years old, I wanted to tell everyone. My friends who were in middle school with me, they were worried about the person that was next to them, how they thought about them. I thought, man, it was very dramatic. If this person gets shot right now, are they going to heaven or are they going to hell? And I would figure out a way to somehow talk about the gospel. We would go to Subway to grab some sandwiches. Subway first started, and, and uh, with my, my homeboys, we had my, the friends that I just grew up with, and I want a steak and cheese. What kind of bread do you want? And I want it on whole wheat bread. Well, we ran out of bread. You ran out of bread. You know, there is a bread that is never going to run out. <laughs> His name is Jesus Christ, and I think you're hungry for him. And my friends are like, oh, my goodness, you're going to get slapped. <laughs> you're going to... Remember those days? I think the church in Ephesus forgot. What begins to happen, and it's happened in my life, and I'm recovering from this, I'm preaching to myself is that you began to define success in man's eyes and not God's eyes. You define success in man's eyes and not, and not God's eyes. And you forget that success, biblical success, is faithfulness. Huh? It's faithfulness. It's not necessarily what the professor says or what the people think after you sing or after you... It's where you're faithful. Exodus chapter 20. Moses, we're thirsty. Bam, there's your water. Success, right? No. Success in man's eyes, but he wasn't faithful. Instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it twice. We do the same thing. We do it with church growth. We do it with church planning. We do it with missions. We do it with lectures. We do it with grades. Success in man's eyes is not success and always success in God's eyes. Success in God's eyes means you have to be faithful, faithful to him. How many hours a week do you spend in God's word? Remember when you used to read just to read? The wonderful thing about this definition for success is Everyone in this room could be successful biblically because you're, you're faithful. You, you don't have any excuses. Well, I don't have the resources. I don't have the IQ. I didn't have the preparation. I didn't have the upbringing. Well, can you be faithful? Can you be faithful to your first love? So what did this church look like? 
that was apparently doing all the right things but didn't, wasn't motivated properly. The, this church, the way that it probably looked like, the, the kids won all of the Bible memory contests. When they went to camps with the other kids, these kids were always winning. They were the kids with the big Bibles, right? This church gave all of the conferences. Whenever there was a conference in, in the region, I'd have to, well, let's go to, they know they're doing it right. Let's go to them. Majority of the church, they went to Bible studies, home groups, missional communities, whatever you want to call it. They, they did that. Ah, ah. But when people in the church started coming out of different types of closets, they quoted Romans 1 and they said, leave. When the marriage of the couple in leadership was struggling with divorce, they quoted the Sermon on the Mount and said, you need to go. When the teenage boy who had been living in the shadows for years finally confessed to his chemical addiction, they said, the body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have no room for you here. We can't separate our, our love for Christ and our love for people. Have you caught yourself loving to serve God more than you love God? Do you love serving Jesus more than you love Jesus? Do you love speaking about him more than you like speaking to him? Then John would say, be careful with the blind spot. I remember hearing this story. Tony Campolo was uh, walking down Chestnut Street in downtown Philly, and um, he saw this homeless guy, heavyset, bearded, funky beard, right, like dreads, food, and uh, smelled like urine and alcohol, and uh, Tony says that he made eye contact with him, and he tried to keep walking in his nice white uh, press shirt and his briefcase going to school, and, um, and the homeless man had a piping hot cup of coffee from McDonald's and said, hey, mister, you want to try my coffee? And Tony Campola walks a few steps, and then he stops and puts his briefcase down and says, sure. Grabs a cup of coffee and takes a sip of it, gives it back to the homeless guy. And he goes, you're being particularly kind today. What's the reason for your generosity? He goes, mister, I, I, I kind of feel like if you have something good, you should share it with other people. Campola goes, Nice. Nice, much respect. What can I share with you? The homeless guy goes, I could use a hug. And then Tony says, I wish he would have asked me for a five. I would have given it to him. And so he said, okay, well, let's hug. And he, uh, he, he goes up, and he's going to give him kind of a Christian church hug, right? <laughs> you know? And the guy uh, grabs him and, and pulls him in, wrinkling his shirt. And uh, Tony says that he's embarrassed and, and ashamed because people are watching. And this grown man is giving him a full body hug. He said, I felt embarrassed and ashamed. But then my shame turned to awe, turned to 
worship, and I, I felt as if I heard the words of Jesus speaking through the corridors of time, saying, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me water. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I needed a hug, you, you gave me one. I hear those stories, and I go, yeah, I'm not. And Paul says in Corinthians, the Holy Spirit will begin to work, work his love in your life. It's not natural. It doesn't come natural to us. It has nothing to do with it. It's not your personality. It's a spiritual work that he has to do in your life and in my life. So what is it that Jesus does First thing we said he did was he commends your work. Secondly, he condemns your weakness. And then here we see that he rewards their repentance, and he can reward your repentance. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand. I will remove your impact. I will remove your influence in this place unless you repent. He says, remember, repent, redo. Remember, repent, redo. Remember, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember what it was like when he was your first love. And every decision you made revolved around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He says, remember that. Take a moment. Put your phone down. Breathe and just think of what it was like. Remember. Secondly, repent. Change of mind, change of heart, change of behavior. Turn around. Spend a little less time progressing and moving forward and take a minute to stop, think, and go back. Say, what, what was it like? I need to go in that direction. Remember. Re repent. You could say, I'm sorry, I haven't loved people the way you've wanted me to love people. Help me to love them. He says, if not, your church will be a dead church. Your ministry will be a dead ministry. He's warning them. And then redo, do the things you did at first. Do the things that you did at first. It's a very, very strong warning. I remember being in seminary and praying for uh, God to make me smarter. <laughs> I, I told a friend that I graduated from Cambridge, I said, I want to I wanna get a doctorate. And he looked at my grades. And uh, I'm what you call a, a late bloomer, intellectually. And, <laughs> and he looked at my grades, a loving guy, Dr. Tim Savage, uh, pastors of church in Camelback, uh, Arizona, a godly, godly man. And he, he looked at my grades. He goes, you really need to pray. You really need to pray. <laughs> like, <laughs> Bernie, I love you, and I want God's best for Man, we need a miracle. Like, this is not working right here. And I would pray for God to change my circumstance. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're praying for God to change your circumstance. And maybe he doesn't care so much about your circumstance. Maybe he doesn't want to change your circumstance. Maybe he wants to change you. And he's using your circumstance to change you. He cares more about your heart than about your circumstance. Ask him, Lord, if you need to change anything, change me. Your first love should be your first work. 
Not far from where I lived in Miami, there was a flight, Eastern Airlines Flight 401. It was leaving uh, LaGuardia, New York, to go to Miami. And when they were arriving at Miami, the light for the deployment of the landing gear did not go off, even though the, the pilot hit the button to deploy. So they, they didn't know. Did the landing gear deploy and the bulb not work, or did it not deploy? That's why the bulb didn't turn on. And so the, the pilot of the flight, the captain, got up and started messing with a 70-cent bulb. They said, well, let's change the bulb. We'll put a new bulb. They had the new one. Let's put a new bulb, and then that'll, that'll tell us. He, he couldn't get it dislodged. And the, the flight engineer got up and says, I'll, I'll dislodge this. I've done this before. And then somebody else got up and started helping. And then a flight attendant got up and started helping them. We, we can do this. We, we can do this. We have thousands and thousands of flight hours. We can fly this plane by ourselves. Not recognizing that while they were messing with a 50-cent bulb with a distraction... The airplane crash-landed, killing 99 of 170 passengers. Preoccupation with a distraction for a 70-cent light bulb. What a disaster. Friends, the Christian life is a flight. Don't be preoccupied with distractions. Remember that your first love must be your first work. And that's why we love him and we love others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your patience with us. We acknowledge that complacency with sin has crashed many Christians. And when that takes place, it affects us, our families, our children, our coworkers, in the name of Christ. Help us to not get distracted. Help us to stay focused. Help us to make sure that our first love is our first work. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his reputation alone. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.